Welcome to another edition of A Positive Podcast, where we work to enhance our lives by exposing the tools that we already have inside of us. My podcasts are designed to be short inspirations that will take these proven methodologies of positive psychology and give you examples and deeper insights on how to practically apply them in your own life. In other of my podcasts, I've shared some tips and tools. Today, as I will do on occasion, I interview someone who can share wisdom and life experiences that essentially do the same thing, teach us that we have the answers inside ourselves. Today, we have the privilege to interview an amazing woman, Amelia Zivotowski. Amelia is the CEO and founder of the Flourishing Center, a New York City-based benefit corporation that is dedicated to increasing the flourishing of individuals, organizations, and communities worldwide. She's the creator of the acclaimed certification in applied positive psychology, the CAP program. She's the creator of the Bounce Back Better program, positive psychology coaching certification, flourishing skills group, just to name a few. If you haven't noticed, she likes creating. Amelia holds a master's degree from the University of Pennsylvania in positive psychology and is currently pursuing her PhD in mind-body medicine from Saybrook University, where she is also an adjunct faculty member. Amelia holds a MCC credential with International Coaching Federation, as well as over a dozen certifications and modalities, ranging from coaching to yoga, just to name a few. Prior to her work in the science of well-being, Amelia was a professional party entertainer. Thus, she ed educates in a way that entertains and enables people to connect socially to each other, and her approach fuses her background first and foremost as a practitioner, then a researcher and an academic, as well as her extensive career in business as an entrepreneur. She integrates these tools into a unique approach to vitality and mind-body health, inspiring and empowering others to craft a life of thriving. Hello, Amelia, and welcome. It's a great honor and privilege to interview you. Like I mentioned previously, you are the CEO and the founder of the Flourishing Center and the creator of the acclaimed certification in applied positive psychology, the CAP program that I personally graduated from last November. And it's an incredible life-changing program that I enjoy tremendously. And ever since I met you, I've been curious to know more about who you are and learn about the process that got you to where you are today. I would love for you to share with my listeners, if possible, your story of how you came about establishing this flourishing center, and to tell us your story of how you came to be the Amelia that you are today. Oh, thank you. Oh my goodness. Well, it's firstly just such a joy to be here, and thank you for being one of our uh, 1,400 change agents out there in the world who are using the science of positive psychology. Um, it's just such a joy for me to see our students learn the science and learn the skills and then go out and share this and take their own take on it and, and give it their own flavor. So it just makes me so happy to see that you're you're creating this opportunity for people. Mm -hmm. um, I'm happy to tell you all about myself. If, oh gosh, it feels a little indulgent. I'm um, not really sure where to start, but I guess I'll, I'll just sort of say where my professional career started because I, I do think it's a little unusual, uh, especially when I, I look at 14-year-olds today and I'm like, how was, I, how was I working at that age? How was I going all over Long Island, New York, uh, having my parents drive me from, house to, uh, from one house to another, entertaining people's birthday parties? Um, so it's a little bit of an interesting start that I had as a, as a career woman or young yeah. woman. Um, but it's also been a lot of work over the past 20 years, because I like to say once I started working and I just haven't stopped. Yeah. But I was 
just super blessed that as a child, I got this opportunity to audition as a DJ dancer at people's bar and bat mitzvahs. I was a party entertainer where I basically got paid to energize a crowd of people and get people up and dancing and motivated and inspired. And I absolutely loved what I did. I got to bring joy into people's lives and have this really neat alternative career. And I used that career to pay my way through college and graduate school. And when I when I was thinking about who do I want to be in the world or what do I want to do when I when I quote unquote grow up, um, I hope I never grow up, but right. I had heard that there were people who had careers as life coaches and motivational speakers. And I absolutely knew that that is what I wanted to do in the world. And I just had this really um, unique career path that I didn't feel like I had to go traditional to then build out my dreams. I was able to continue to entertain and bring joy to people while I started the Flourishing Center and didn't really know what the company was going to be. I knew what I loved to do, which was to help people and to teach people and to learn about the research and science and then digest it and dissect it and then help people disseminate it into the world to actually use this work. And I know that so much of it for me was actually from using these skills and tools myself. And so I like to say that I'm a tool junkie. If there's a if there's something out there that people say can increase their well-being, um, and it's proven by science or it's something that someone says works, so I, I test it out on myself first, and then I test it out on my students, and then we try to figure out how can we give people these tools. And and for me, it's a passion for personal mastery. I think that there's this capacity to feel like you are actualizing yourself, that you are showing up as the best version of yourself. And I'm just a voracious learner and a voracious creator. And so I built the Flourishing Center in 2008 and um, started to teach and give programs in, in positive psychology. And in 2012, at the New York Open Center with the uh, partnership and co-founding of a classmate of mine, we co-founded the Certificate in Applied Positive Psychology program, which I had then built out and created into the program that it is today, which is a place for people to learn and to actually go out and create a career for themselves in positive psychology. Because I think at some point I just had this strong knowing and understanding that there's only so much I could do. There's only so many one-on-one -on -one coaching sessions I can teach. There's only so many classes I can give. And I became determined to say, let's take the change agents of the world, the people who are passionate about helping, the people who are passionate about making an impact, and let's give them these skills. Let's teach them. Let's make it really easy for them to plug and play positive psychology so that they can go out and have it give them uh, the, the skills and the tools that they need to create meaningful work in the world and be able to get these skills out to people because it's sort of crazy to me as I would learn these skills I would say why wasn't this taught to me in schools yeah. or why why um why aren't we taught how to manage our stress or deal with our thoughts and our worries and our mind chatter or these relationship communication skills I mean we know relationships are so important to well-being why aren't we taught these things or why are we not taught how to keep our bodies healthy and strong and thriving and so a lot of my work has just been focused on how do we get these skills into people's hands and um yeah and in between that life you know throws a whole bunch of curveballs and a whole bunch of um obstacles to overcome which really were opportunities to put the skills in practice and say that if I didn't have these skills I would not have been able to get through many of the the toughest 
moments of my life and some of the hurdles that I've, I've had to overcome. Wow. So it's so interesting because you mentioned about how positive psychology and how you personally are a tool junkie. That was my favorite part of the CAP program was all those tools. And, you know, the first time I ever heard about positive psychology was when I came across your flourishing centers CAP program. And I know that positive psychology is a scientific study of human flourishing. And we were taught that if you were to sum up positive psychology in two words, you would say, I choose because it's all about our reaction and how we choose to react to all of life's circumstances. And I know that's kind of oversimplifying it, but for those, those of my listeners who may not know what positive psychology is, can you give a brief overview and share in your own words what positive psychology means to you and what it, it can accomplish for people? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I love that, that if the reminder that we can simplify it and we can say that it's the ability to choose. And we could also say that in some ways, positive psychology's topics are not new. Uh, philosophers have been asking, what does it mean to live a meaningful good life for hundreds of thousands of years? And our ancestors have uh, always our grandparents and great-grandparents would try to raise us to have good character, to be grateful, to be people who want to make a meaningful contribution into the world. Um, the newness of what positive psychology offers is that psychology is, an, is a scientific study. And so positive psychology aims to take the types of topics that have been long discussed in self-help books or through age-old wisdom and putting positive psychology into action means putting research into action. So scientists have actually started to take these questions seriously and actually bring them into a laboratory, whereas before it wasn't studied, it was just assumed. It was assumed that if a person was depressed and you treated their depression, that they would be happy. And that if the person was anxious and you healed their anxiety disorder, that they would be healthy and calm. Um, but we know that happiness is more than the absence of depression, just the same way that health is more than just not having a sickness. Being very healthy is very different than I don't have a cold right now. And so positive psychology was called positive psychology because it meant to go north of neutral, not just get back to baseline, but actually scientifically study what, what are the conditions of north of neutral, of, of being incredibly happy and feeling connected, feeling that you have engagement in your life, that you have meaning, that you're able to meet the goals that you set for your Yourself, that you're able to feel that your body matches your internal state in terms of health and vitality. These are all north of neutral states and positive psychology aims to actually run studies on those things and understand those in a deeper way. So then to form theories and to, to form uh, experiments where we actually test interventions so that we could actually say, here's an intervention that has been tested, that has actually worked. And that doesn't mean that it's a one-size-fits-all model, that happiness at the end of the day is still subjective. It will mean different things to different people. But to actually identify that there are pathways that a person can take to increase their happiness and well-being, that if you are someone who recognizes that you're in a space of neutrality and you want to go to feel happier, more satisfied that you could. And that the great thing is that there is no ceiling. If you are already pretty happy, pretty satisfied with your life, that you can continue to grow and you can continue to move to a place where you feel like in the conditions of your life, you feel like you are thriving. Yeah, that's, that's a good summary to get people from baseline 
past baseline because like we ask people how are you okay fine fine so many people are just going through life like that and there's so many great tools and models in positive psychology that really can help people my personal favorite tool is the best case worst case most likely tool um mm. to help us refocus the mind that martin zeligman suggests this exercise you just put it in perspective basically starting by conjuring the worst case scenario which our minds tend to do first then moves to best case scenario and finishes with the most likely scenario the, the idea is to redirect our thoughts from irrational to rational so what is your personal favorite tool or intervention that you found the most the most helpful? Well, firstly, I, I love worst case, best case, most likely, because it's a really good one for people who are high level worriers or people yeah. who tend to get caught up in the stress cycle of what if, so what if this happens and what if that happens? And it's such a good one. Um, and it was definitely a very impactful one for me when I learned it because I was raised by a, a high level worrier. Um, I also like to say that I inherited some good worry genes. So I, uh, my, my grandmother uh, was a Holocaust survivor of two concentration camps and wow. my family um, immigrated to America from the Ukraine when I was five. And so there was quite a bit of stress in my, my kind of early childhood life, but also I feel that it was inherited just through the way that we know that the sensitivity to stress gets passed down in our genes. And so worry uh, was always kind of present in some way, whether it was parents, you know, worrying about money as immigrants to this country, working multiple jobs and, you know, grew up with a lot of love and a lot of safety in, in my in my family. Uh, but definitely there was this uh, underlying current of worry that would just always be present for my parents. And as a sensitive kid, I took it on. And um, and then also some of the obstacles that my family had to overcome was the, uh, when I was 14, my brother passed away in an accident. He was swimming at night with his fiance and some friends and his fiance started drowning and my brother ran in to rescue her and she survived, but he passed away. And that was not only just like the first major life crisis that I had to endure as, as, a, as a teenager, but it definitely just made for a lifetime of worrying for for my mother for the remainder of her life until she passed away as well. Um, and so definitely when I learned that we had a choice in worry, that it wasn't just something that happened to you, that you could actually choose to feel differently or that you could engage the worry thoughts or you could let them go was a big, big part of uh, my healing journey and my empowerment journey in positive psychology. Um, so for anyone on the line, just to sort of summarize some of the, the, what I think to be the most interesting research around how to work with worry, is to recognize that we don't need worry to problem solve and that the reason we worry is because worry is supposed to tell our brain, hey, pay attention. Something, something potentially bad might be happening here. And usually it's potentials. Most of the things we worry about never come to fruition. Instead of saying, oh, well, that was so silly of me, I worried about all these things and none of them came to fruition. What we do instead is recognize that something entirely different happened. And we say, I didn't worry hard enough. I should have worried more. I didn't even think of that, that that would happen. And so it sort of perpetuates us worrying that much more. Um, so really being able to recognize that we can separate out the things that we stress about from the things that we are 
um, we are trying to do differently and that worrying actually gets in the way of problem solving and that we can separate how we feel and from what we're thinking about. And so if we need protection, we can think about how do I strategize? How do I protect myself? But then to really learn how to calm one's worries and go from what if something will happen to what is actually happening. And so that exercise of going to worst case, best case, and most likely is a great one. Yeah. Um, but that wasn't your question. Your question is, <laughs> what's my favorite? And I would actually say my favorite is gratitude. Yeah. It's my absolute favorite intervention because it is, uh, it's just so multifaceted. It's so simple. And when you think about it, it really is profound. It is the ability to shift your lens to a wider lens where our brain tends to be really narrowed and what it, what it points out to us. It's all the things I haven't done. It's all the things that aren't working. It's all the things that are scary. It's all the things that are going wrong. It's all the things that are unknown. And my brain is likely to just be thinking about those things. And when I zoom out the lens and I go to, what am I grateful for? I start to notice that there's a whole world happening around me where there's so much to be grateful for and so much that is working. And so I really think about gratitude as giving us the ability to have a more accurate camera mm -hmm. because there's always something to be grateful for. And there's so many ways in which we are profoundly blessed and, uh, and it's our, it's our choice kind of referencing the camera. It's our choice to say, what lens do I want to look at the world through? Do I want to look at it through this black and white filter or uh, a Sienna filter where I'm looking at things through a tint or can I see the bigger picture? And gratitude really impacted me so much because when I, I, I never thought of myself as not a grateful person, but when I learned that around the actual concept of actively practicing gratitude, it just opened my eyes to, wow, how much positive emotion I can induce on my own without needing anything in my life to be different and how I can just learn to savor. And oftentimes we don't actually take the time to appreciate things until they're taken away from us. And even yeah. as we're facing this pandemic where we have had many things that we value, many things that we never thought could actually be taken away from us, uh, temporarily taken away, I think it's a great opportunity to start really implementing gratitude as a practice. And it, it can be something that not only do we do ourselves, it's one of the most powerful practices to bring into family dynamics. Yes. Um, some of the families that I, I work with where kids, where they struggle with their, their teenagers being entitled and self-centered and they just like don't understand. I'd have them start to practice something as simple as gratitude practices, having the parents say what they're grateful for, having the kids say what they're grateful for. And it just shifts us away from what's not working into what do I want to be creating? I love that. Yep. What lens do I want to look at the life through? I love that. Um, where you compare life, the whole way of looking at it as a camera lens. That's great. So as I was taking your CAP course program, there was so much that I studied from positive psychology that truly resonated with all of my previous education and learning in Hasidus and Kabbalah. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've heard of that. And so much, so much of it resonates. Um, for those of you listening to this podcast or may not know, just let me give you a cliff note version of what Hasidus is. It's Hasidic teaching is what which are an expansion of Kabbalah or mystical and esoteric teachings of the Torah. Essentially, we look at the deeper dimension of what you see in the Torah text and thought. And an example might be like, I'm sure, Amelia, you heard of the Shema prayer, the most essential prayer that Jews recite three times a day. And in the Shema prayer, it says that we should love Hashem, God, with our whole heart, the whole of Abacha. And that's the actual text. And Rashi, a medieval French rabbi, 
has commentary on this passage, and he says, Shalo el hamakom, and that's in Hebrew text, with, which means, with your whole heart means that your heart shouldn't be divided and in a fight with God, which is interesting because here the commentary is actually saying that it's okay to have your questions with God. That's okay. But you really should love God with your whole heart. That even if a part of your heart's in a fight with him, that's not necessarily a good thing. You want to love him completely. And the word that he uses to refer to God is makom. And in Hebrew, the name um, makom can also refer to God. I'm sure you've heard many terms for God, you know, shechina, elokim, hakadosh baruch Hu, hashem. But this text, actually, he uses, he chose the word makom. And it's interesting that he uses this word because makom also means space or place. And here would be like the idea of Hasidus or Kabbalah. And this great Kabbalist, Rabbi Aaron of Karlin, explains that your heart should not be in a fight, not necessarily with, the, with God, but it's talking about the space or place that you find yourself in. And he explains that so many of us are in a fight with the space that we could, that we are in geographically or mentally, we tell ourselves, if only I could be somewhere else, if only I could live somewhere else, then I'd be happy. And we say, well, if only I'd grown up with different home or different parents or different opportunities, right? And we, the Torah says, well, your heart should not be in a fight with your space. We have to reach an awareness to make peace with the space that we find ourselves in. So it doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive, strive to make changes and better our lives and have better opportunities. And this doesn't mean we shouldn't strive to have better jobs or better relationships with our children or our loved ones or our spouses. Of course, we should try to do that. But we have to come to terms first and to be, be in peace with the fact that the space that we currently in is not a tragedy, but rather our mission. And it's an opportunity. And it's the way we look at it. We have to stop fighting with it and come to peace with it. And then we can fulfill our energy and fulfill our mission. So that's like a lengthy introduction to my question. My question is, Amelia, does this style of Hasidus or Kabbalah resonate with you? Is this message similar to the teachings and, and philosophies of positive psychology like I found it to be? And also, parenthetically, have you ever studied any Kabbalah or Hasidus? I have not uh, formally studied it, and, and it's a beautiful practice. And I was born into Judaism, and I say that I've actually found my way back to Judaism by way of positive psychology. I was um, very honored to be invited to first start bringing positive psychology to rabbis when I was working with an organization called Rabbis Without Borders, mm -hmm. and they would bring me in to sort of share the science. And then the rabbis would say, "Well, we've got we've got practices for that, or we've got rituals that are all about that. We've got a prayer for that." It's <laughs> of like you know there was there was that moment in time where like people were building apps galore and the statement was you know there's an app for that and it yeah. felt like in my time of connecting positive psychology to Judaism it was like we have a practice for that and we have a practice for that we have a practice for for honoring you know we're talking about the space between honoring transitions why we kiss the mezuzah when you walk in it's a place of of pause it's a place of mindfulness and it is as you said that we can define positive psychology as the ability to choose in the space between and that the choice that happens there and i think that the idea of how we relate to our space you know how we relate to our world i think positive psychology offers us theories that are specific and interventions that are specific but the essence of what positive psychology is getting at speaks to the role of one forgiveness of one's past so that you can be free to live a life of of happiness and flourishing mm -hmm. in the moment uh, in the moment and I think that the making peace with your environment, with your space, with your world, I think the way that positive psychology to me explains this is that we have a complaining brain. 
And it's just literally as simple as that. We have a brain that feels a brain that is wired for protection. And if you can just understand that we have a body and a brain that is wired for protection, and it is actually not our our lower brains wiring to actually sit in a place of, wow, my life is really good. Look at how God is taking care of me. Look at how I'm provided for. Look how it's always working out. We can stay there for a little bit and then we forget. And we kind of shut down and we go back to not trusting and worrying and feeling like we need to take care of everything and that we need to make it happen. And then when we go back into that kind of contracted place, we find ourselves shut down. And so I think what positive psychology offers isn't so much that exact message around the role of resistance, although my, my esoteric studies have actually been by way of Tantra and Eastern traditions, and I believe that they're all saying the same thing, which also has the same kind of connection of what is the connection to the divine and a real mm-hmm. um, con- a, a real heartfelt, aligned understanding that the divine is always within us, working for us, working in our best favor, and and that we can find the divine in everything and celebrate the, um, celebrate the miracles, celebrate the blessings, and find this place of positivity and recognizing that we will be at odds with it, with a body that says, protect, are you sure? Okay, uh, you know, I, everything, everything is working out in my favor. God has my back. I am supported. I'm being carried. I'm being ushered. But am I sure? Can I be sure of that? But I don't see this and I, and I need to improve this. And, and so it's finding that balance, I believe, of being both divine and human in one form. And in the tantric tradition, which I would imagine that the deep mysticism of, Kab- of Kabbalah and others are saying the same thing, just in, in different words, is that it's this pulsation, that there is no dualism. There's no separation between myself and God and that we are one and that I have to navigate what it means to have this part of me that is so infinite, that is believing, that is connected. And then I get into my petty self, my lower self that worries, that criticizes, that nitpicks, that says, well, you know, are we there yet? Are we there yet? I call it the little yeah, but frog in my head, you know, so I'll sit there and I'll do my prayers and I'll, and I'll really focus on being so grateful for all that I have. And I'll say, I'm so grateful I have this successful business. And then my brain goes, yeah, but but is it really successful? Like, mm. how does one mark a successful business? You know, I'm so grateful for my body. And it's like, yeah, but, you know, COVID put on a few extra pounds there with COVID, you know? And so it's this little, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. And that's our, that's our lower self. That's our human self. And I think so often we get frustrated at that part of ourselves instead of just really honoring and loving and celebrating that we do have this, this conditioning that we think that we need to criticize or we think we need to worry in order to make positive change. But when we just sort of pause and we take it all in and we say, in this moment, I'm great. I'm fine. Everything's fine. I don't have to be in struggle with my environment, with my space, and that I don't need the struggle in order to grow and that I will be, I'm not going to miss anything. I think, um, I think we live in a culture that makes us afraid to be jinxed, yeah. you know, that if we just feel so grateful that we just come into the present moment, that we will miss something. And I think all of the, the uh, traditions that have an emphasis on the importance of mindfulness, it's like being in the present moment, just being with what is 
in a way that isn't gripping, in a way that is in the here and now, because in the here and now, everything's okay. But it's important to know that we have a brain that doesn't like to be in the here and now. We have a brain that wants to go to the future and we have a brain that wants to think about the past. That's why we replay conversations we've had with people. That's why we project into the future. Mm -hmm. And so when we do this, I think we're reclaiming a mastery over our wiring. We are ascending, we are transcending our biology to say that we're not going to be creatures of habit that i can actually choose a higher path i can redirect and i can and that's where it's all about managing that space that i choose is how do i manage my relationship to space i love that you mentioned um forgiveness of our past which actually leads to my next question because um ever since i've learned i studied positive psychology people have asked me this question but I, i wanted to ask you this you know, traditional psychology primarily focuses on treating and curing mental illness. And while this work is vitally important for the people who need it, it misses the opportunity to also serve the 85% of the population who do not have a diagnosed disorder. So where traditional psychology focused on fixing what was wrong, positive psychology offers a paradigm shift to what's right. And it, we are focusing to create more well-being, happiness, and life satisfaction. And I totally agree with this ideology. My, I've actually seen how this works while coaching clients of my, mine or even with myself. My question is, how does this work with people who do not struggle with, a, you know, say, a diagnosis or mental illness, but they do have a trauma? Or, for example, have been abused, you know, not like overtly, but they've had trauma in their life. And, you know, people can you know, discuss if everyone, someone has some form of trauma. And my question is, do they need, don't they need to spend time, much time, unpacking all these emotions and feelings? first? Don't, don't they need to focus on what went wrong and how it affected them before they're able to move on and ask themselves where to from here or what else is true and what are my blessings are? So in addition to what we know to, to help us get through trauma, my question is, is, don't you think it's important for us to spend time unpacking all of those underlying issues and trauma before we begin to ask what's next or where to from here? Yeah, I, I think that it's a really important conversation to be had because I think sometimes people misunderstand that what positive psychology is saying about the role of our past or the role of negative emotions. So we don't deny negative emotions or we don't, um, we don't override them to say that we don't, we don't need to address how we feel. The idea is, is that we just, we, we don't want to get stuck in it. So what positive psychology just says is it's not enough to understand why you feel the way that you feel. Um, psychology and, and this is this is more old school psychology. There's many forms of psychology that are becoming much more solution focused, uh, that do transcend beyond just understanding why you feel the way that you feel. But when I first started to do this work, I'd have people come to me and say things like, you know, I've been in therapy for 15 years, and I can tell you everything that's wrong with me and how it came to be there, and and what role my mother's played in it, and what role my father played in it, and my sister, and how I was neglected about this, and like it all makes sense to me, but I don't know how to move forward. And there is no clear cut rule around how to, how much you need to move through anything. And I think what in need, what instead people need are the tools for mastering oneself to know how to deal with the emotions when they come up, um, how to look for sources of personal 
understanding and being able to, and, and I've got a saying that is awareness enables compassion, enables care. So it is so important to understand where things come from. But many of the things that are quote unquote traumatic, firstly, I think that we need to use the body to work through them, not the mind. And so that's why my work is not just in positive psychology. It's also in the field of mind body medicine. And I do a lot of work with somatopsychic um, and somatosensory therapies and, and interventions that actually use the body to move a lot of what we have experienced because emotions get released into the body. And so oftentimes when it is traumatic, you don't use reason to talk your way through it. It actually is about using your, your body, your feelings, movement, and all sorts of other things to actually lift and move through traumatic experiences. So the question is, don't you, don't you need to first do A in order to get to B? And unfortunately, it's not so linear. Um, it's not, it's many of the things that we experience. So for example, as I was re referencing, you know, the grief of my losing my brother. Um, well, my mother got diagnosed with ovarian cancer two years after my brother died. And we fought that battle together for 10 years until she passed away. Uh, actually, uh, in two days, we'll, we'll mark eight years. Uh, she passed away on, on August 14th, um, since my mother has passed. And, um, and as I as I went through that experience, most recently, my father passed away of COVID on March 30th. And oh. the losing of now everyone in my family has kicked up a tremendous amount of grief for feeling not just the sense of I'm alone, my mother, my father, my brother have all passed away now, but also just, you know, just feeling what it was like to miss my brother and to, you know, he was, he was my first love in some ways. And, uh, and he was, uh, and, and just what that meant. And so it's like my, you never really, I don't believe you ever get over it. You never get over the traumatic things you, they, you, they become a part of who you are. And so it's not a linear path. It's very much a spiral path and all the ways in which I, I use my positive psychology skills. One of the tools I love, I learned from uh, Ben Zander, he uses the word how fascinating and he encourages people that when you when you would find yourself normally triggered by something instead of saying oh this is terrible or this is so hard or this is that you just sort of say how fascinating and sort of what you said about positive psychology in two words I choose when we can create a different response to that knee-jerk response that wants to go this is terrible this is awful and instead go well how fascinating I'm re-triggered I thought I'm I thought like there have been so many moments over the past couple of months with everything we're going through it's like I did hear my brain say wow I thought I processed my grief and and there is just this mountain that's still present within me and uh, and I I don't resist it sort of as you said um, the being in conflict with my space I don't resist it I let my tears flow when they flow and other traumatic events, I think that what people need isn't so much to be told, hey, you can't do positive psychology until you've kind of done enough psych traditional psychology to talk about how you feel and to process it. It's like, it doesn't work that way. What mm -hmm. we need is we need to teach people the very essential skill set of how to work with their thoughts, their feelings, and their actions in ways that they know how to identify what types of thoughts are useful, what types of thoughts are not useful, how to actually be the thinker rather than having the thoughts happen. We need to teach people how to deal with their feelings, how to actually work with feelings, that feelings don't just have to happen to us, that we can choose our responses. Mm -hmm. And if we teach people how to help them 
create the kind of behaviors that they want, all of those other things can fall into place. I, I know my own limits for when I've exhausted my resourcefulness in terms of processing my traumatic events. I know, I know how to feel until, you know what, I need some extra help here. Like I started to work recently with a, a dance teacher who does sort of like dance therapy because I knew that, you know, just sitting there and talking about what happened to my family isn't going to help me. Like I need to use my body to access those, those wounds, those, those places of tenderness within me. Mm. So do we need to do A before we get to B? It's just, we as humans are so complex and everybody needs different things. And so I've seen people be able to absolutely move on without needing to understand exactly what happened. But at some point, I do believe that you need to digest it because the emotion has to go somewhere. Mm. And positive psychology for me is all about digestion. It's about saying, can we digest our life experiences? Can we process the things that happen to us without getting stuck, without repelling, without resisting, which would be that Kabbalic principle of being at peace with our, peace with our environment, without resisting, without clinging, without pushing away. Wow. How fascinating. I'm just going to say how fascinating because I'm going to use that line. I love it. So good. I mean, I had an experience today with one of my children and I'm thinking back to it now. I'm reflecting on what you're saying and I'm thinking, wow, how fascinating. That really triggered me. And it's such a better way of looking at it instead of saying to myself, why is this bothering me so much? But rather, how fascinating. I need to think about that and what my feelings are, what thoughts and feelings are coming up from that experience. That's great. I know that you're short on time and you, you need to go. So I'm going to do the last question. Um, I know that you have this amazing Bounce Back Better program, which teaches people to build up their resilience and help them move forward. And being that we're currently in a pandemic and so many people are struggling, are not sure what the next day is going to bring. Are the kids going to go to school? They're not. Are we going to last in school? Are we going to be back to shut down again? Um, perhaps you can just share with us all a tip or a tool that just, you know, parting words to help us stay in the moment and focus on the here and now. Any words of advice for our, our new reality that we're currently in? Hmm. That's such a powerful question. Um, one thing I will say is it's really important to know that the research shows that resilience is the norm and not the exception. And that's why the title of my program is not Bounce Back, it's actually Bounce Back Better. And so the reason for that is because research shows that we are so resilient as human beings that we, you, when, when, when given the need to step up to the plate, we figure it out. And I think that you can even see it now. Like I think we people have to frequently remind themselves, hey, we are still in mid-pandemic. You know, because look at how we have adapted. We figured it out. We are still, for the most part, I'm doing okay. I'm happy. You know, I mean, yes, my life may be, or I'm, I, or it may not be happy. It may be I'm worried. I'm scared. I'm trying to figure things out. I am trying to meet paycheck to paycheck or trying to figure out my next steps. But for the most part, there's this eerie, I think for some people, sense of I'm weirdly okay and I yeah. could never have imagined being okay. Yeah. And what I say to those people is saying, well, you're actually putting the science into practice because most of us, when faced with difficult circumstances, step up to the plate. And I think it's important to remind ourselves of that over and over and over again so that when our brain goes, what if this happens? What if that happens? What if this happens? That we're able to say, I'll handle it. I'll handle it. I don't know how I'm going to handle it, but I've handled everything that's ever come my way before. I've handled it before and I'll handle it again. And really starting to hold that 
that understanding of resilience. Do some people become traumatized from, from stressful events? Absolutely. Do people use it as a new source of meaning and growth and purpose? Absolutely. We call the latter post-traumatic stress disorder. We call the, um, uh, sorry, the, the latter the first one, post-traumatic yes. stress disorder, the most recent one I just said, post-traumatic growth, that we grow as a result of the trauma. And so most of us are resilient and we're going to be resilient. I don't want to like glaze over and say most people are going to be resilient. And then, oh yeah, by the way, some people are going to be traumatized and like there's <laughs> nothing you could do about it. Um, because there is research that shows that, yes, that that is what happens. But I actually put a whole program together. It's a free program. I think it's a three-hour course um, on my website if you go to theflourishingcenter.com. And it actually is all about how if we can understand how trauma gets encoded in the brain, we can actually immunize ourselves from becoming traumatized from COVID-19. And so if anybody is um, kind of concerned about their own mental health and their own well-being, feel free to check out that free course just to get a better understanding of how you can begin to work now. You don't have to wait till the pandemic is over to work through the trauma. We can actually be working through it in real time as it's happening so that we don't wind up traumatized from this. Yes, that's an excellent point. And in terms of what I think people can do, in addition to reminding themselves of that fact, is remember the importance of tending and befriending. So we know that stress has a masculine and a feminine response, and we as human beings all have masculine and feminine energy within us. Yeah. And we hear a lot that when people are stressed out, they fight or flight or they freeze if it's super stressful. And that is one thing that, that stress makes us want to do, but not a particularly useful one because when we're fighting an invisible uh, cloud of air molecules as our villain or we can't run because we're quarantined in our home, um, it's important to turn to the other response to stress in our body, which is tend and befriend and to be with people in any way that we can. And this is so important because we have a body that is wired to uh, react in a very specific way to threat mode. When we're in threat mode, it lowers our immune system. When we're in threat mode, we don't think as clearly. When we are in threat mode, we don't sleep as well. When we're in threat mode, we take away from our longevity. When we're in threat mode, we have short fuses and we snap at our kids. When we're in threat mode, we eat to self-soothe ourselves. And the most powerful thing I think we can do for one another is find any meaningful way that we can connect, we can tend to one another, and we can downregulate our nervous system. So if you have kids, snuggle a lot with your kids, snuggle with your partner, offer to, you know, rub each other's hair and to, you know, give each other a foot massage, um, spend time physically in proximity saying, I am safe, I am calm, take a bubble bath, down regulate your nervous system. And I was saying this a lot to people when we were, we were going through kind of not knowing how to even navigate the grocery store, how close to be with people. I mean, we were all like porcupines walking around with our, 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 you know, our porcupines went six far, six feet out in front of us, where it's like, how close are you going to get to me? A very stressful state to be in for the body. And one of the things I would remind people is that we actually can benefit from a little bit of hypervigilance when we're out there in the world. Is this person wearing a mask? What have I touched? Let me just make sure I don't put my hands to my eyes or to my mouth. That 
little bit of hypervigilance is good, but if you cannot downregulate that that hypervigilance when you come home, that's when it starts to make an impact on you. So finding ways to find calm and love and serenity and peace and gratitude and connection and laugh a little or laugh a lot. Um, you know, they, we would say these aren't laughing matters, but if, if we can't laugh, if we can't find the good, the sweetness, the joy, then then it's then this disease or this virus is really terrorizing us more than the actual disease because it pulls us away from one another. It's like Viktor Frankl, who wrote the book Man's Search for Meaning, is that when the Nazis were able to take everything away from him, they could not take away his right to choose how he thought and how he interacted with other people and what would he put his attention on. Yeah. And I think that that is what we need to reclaim. And when we do so, we're going to get through this. We're going to get through the other side of this and there will be creativity that is birthed. There'll be new structures that are birthed as, as a result of this, but we have to stick together and really focus on that choosing. Yeah, that's all about, like we said, what we can choose. I choose. That really sums it up. So thank you again, Amelia, for giving me and my listeners so much time and allowing me to ask some tough questions. And I want to wish you continued success in all of your endeavors. And may Hashem, God, continue to give you the energy and the strength to teach and share so much wisdom and give clarity to so many. You're really doing amazing work. So thank you, thank so, you much. so much. 